0: Good afternoon, my name is Gina Swed Cullen and I am the Vice President of Business Development for Symphony Care Network. And I'd like to welcome everybody to the Sounds of Symphony. And today I have with me our very own uh, Drew Lazara, Symphony's Director of Behavioral Health. And in addition, we have a very special guest with us, Dr. Youssef Sala, who is Partners in Hope, a board-certified physician in psychiatry. So welcome. Thanks so much. Great. So I'm just going to kick this conversation off because, you know, certainly this is a topic that the three of us have actually spoken quite a bit about. And it's something that we've been very passionate about and something that we've seen quite a bit in our current landscape, but it's behavioral health. And so- I can tell you from a trending perspective, when we used to get referrals from our our hospital partners, you know, we saw a lot of, you know, the general stuff, ortho, pulmonary cardiac, which is still very important. But over the last year, especially during our COVID times, you know, one of the referrals that we saw often and that we had such a challenging time placing was behavioral health. And so with that, we brought Drew on board with us, who specializes in, in behavioral health and dementia specifically. And together we started to, to grow and develop some programs. And uh, we we're really fortunate to connect with you, Dr. Sala, who specializes in this and well. So welcome. And if you could you know, just kind of share with us your background a bit and you know, your partnership with Symphony so far.
1: Yeah, of course. Again, thanks so much for having me. It's exciting to be on the Sounds of Symphony. I'm Yusuf Salah, a psychiatrist lived in the Chicagoland area my entire life, trained at the University of Chicago. It's been a great partnership thus far with Symphony. I think that we've been building a system of care that's quite exceptional. And I think we have a really strong team for working on the very things that you're bringing up today, Gina. Mm -hmm. The work that we've been doing in the facilities, I think is really at the leading edge of what's happening in the community, on the inpatient side, outpatient side, and in other contexts of care, there's an explosion of mental health symptomatology. And I think that the focus from all sectors has been really quite impressive in trying to help our residents and patients to move in the right direction as it relates to mental health.
0: Mm-hmm. I would agree. Drew, you know, like I said, you're just such a welcome addition to our, our team, our Symphony family, really. And I think you bring a unique perspective to some of the programmings that we
2: do here at Symphony. So do you want to share a little bit about that? Sure. You know, I think one of the most important pieces of delivering behavioral health care in the long-term care space is understanding what the needs in the community are, because those are the residents that are being referred into the facilities. And one of the things that we really saw was a need for an expanded approach to dementia care, specifically for individuals who are living with dementia and are also experiencing some pretty disruptive behavioral symptoms of their dementia. And One of the things that Symphony has done a really nice job with is providing intensive training for caring for these types of residents and really committing to preparing the staff who are caring for these residents with everything that they need to deliver good quality care. In partnership with Dr. Salah, we're able to really do thorough evaluation of these residents, understand what's been going on with them, what may be contributing to their behavioral symptomatology. And then hopefully, with the support of a medication regimen and a highly structured program model, we can tend to these behaviors and offer a much better quality of life for people struggling with this illness. And I can add that certainly the feedback that we've been receiving
0: from the hospitals, you know, and some of the work that we've done so far has been extremely positive you know, in addition that we continue to see these really, really challenging referrals. But our teams, you know, on, on the front line at the buildings that are have been, you know, just kind of diving into those referrals to see how we can manage these patients, you know, to have the support of you, Drew, to have the support from your group as well, Dr. Sala. So it's just really been an amazing journey so far. And I think we're just at the beginning of what we're able to do. So I'm kind of excited to see uh, how much further, you know, we can go and take this. So I think a lot of the physicians we work with There's something in addition that you add that I haven't seen before. And so I wanted you to talk a little bit about that. Your monthly group sessions with the buildings, you know, so that's just like another added support that your group brings that I I haven't seen before. So you want to share a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think teamwork makes the dream work. And as cliche as that sounds, it really is the truth. I think that for the longest time, medical care around the world relied on the doctor as being sort of the sole provider of care. And we developed sort of paternalistic models of doing that that had benefits, but also downsides. What we're doing in the symphony facilities, I think is very different than that. And I think that it's the direction that healthcare has to go, especially as it relates to mental health. This is really, I think, the leading edge. And it's not a system that I've come up with. I mean, I, I owe it to our vice president of business development, Megan Balaban, and to Raj Ismail, our chief executive officer, for developing you know what is, I think, a, a really a winning system. So to get into it, I think that from start to finish, we're never relying on one individual to be the be-all, end-all. So it starts off with us starting out when we enter a facility, Having an interdisciplinary meeting with all of the major clinical staff to discuss in detail every single resident who might benefit from psychiatric care, whether that includes medications or not so it's it's a long discussion where we're going into the details the broad points the specifics about everyone so that we're all on the same page about what's really important for the resident after that, we have a dual provider approach where we have a physician assistant or a nurse practitioner who's on the ground seeing every individual who may benefit from our care, at times often screening to see if they'd benefit from our care since they have training to recognize subtleties that other clinical providers may not have or may not have available to them as readily. And there's an on-the-ground evaluation that's occurring that's comprehensive. And any changes, modifications, clinical care alterations are discussed live with me, the physician, at the point of care. So it's two doctors and one starting out right from the get-go. And I think it really sort of is in line with the theme here that no one is the entire answer to clinical questions, mm-hmm. and especially as it relates to mental health. So our providers are on the ground And they're able to discuss every one of these cases with their supervising physician. So it's two doctors in one. We do that evaluation. So we have a good baseline on what's happening with each individual. Then we move to what you were referencing, Gina, which is the monthly meetings. Mm -hmm. And I think that's critical. A lot of medical care has been designed to be reactive. And the way of the future is to really be proactive We need to prevent illness before it happens. We need to prevent harm before it occurs. That's what the monthly meetings are about. They're broken into three sort of pieces every month. The first is where we're discussing with the interdisciplinary team, so directors of nursing, psychotropic nurses, assistant directors of nursing, often administrators, social services directors. We're all in the room having a discussion about the patients who are on sort of the list for that month. And the first thing that we're doing is looking at their medication regimens and ensuring that they're at the lowest dose of medication that is effective. Mm -hmm. Because a big problem that you can run into is over-medicating in psychiatry. And that's where we get bad care and we get physical harm to people. And at that point, you know, if we're giving people too much medicine, we're not really improving their symptomatology. We're just putting a Band-Aid on it. And that's not how this should work. It's not what we would do for our Grandmothers, grandfathers, fathers, mothers, etc., brothers and sisters. So, we're in there. That's the first part of the meeting is ensuring that everyone is on the lowest dose of medication, and it takes a team. You know, when we're in the building seeing an individual, let's say we spend an hour with them. I'm forgetting how many hours there are in a week I'm trying to do the math. <laughs> um, there are many hours in a week, mm-hmm. and we're only seeing them for a small subsegment of that. Between all of us, though, we have 24-7 coverage and observation, and that discussion is extremely valuable. Different perspectives, social services, nursing, physician, physician assistant, nurse practitioner, administrator. There's a lot that goes into that meeting. So we're making it a priority. And I think that's a very sort of important part of what's happening here, is that if we take the time to make something a priority, which is, I mean, to give Symphony. Credit, that's exactly what Symphony is doing, Mm -hmm. is making this a priority. When we do that and we take the time to do it, it's really not that hard. But having that meeting be something that's required, something that we don't miss, something's going on, we will make up for it. Having everyone in the room, critical, very, very important. And in that meeting, I make a point of me, myself, physically being in the meeting and running it for the most part because we're a team. Partners in Hope is a large group of individuals, each with their own specialties. I'm the physician who's in charge. And it's so important to me that for those meetings to go well, because I think that they're so important and critical to care for the patients, that I need to be the person who's in the room. I need to be the medical provider who's in the room doing that. So it's important. The second part of the meeting is discussing interdisciplinarily residents. are having challenges. We're all looking to help when there's a problem. I think in the first part of the meeting, what we're doing is being preventative, being proactive about making sure that the medication dosing is in the right place so that we don't end up harming anyone with our treatments, Mm -hmm. too much medication. In the second part of the meeting, we're dealing with the realities on the ground. There's a patient whose depression has gotten much worse. Someone has noted that. We need to discuss it. What's going on? What's the background? How can we help? Someone is having, as Drew had sort of uh, referred to, behaviors that are related to their dementia or related to another psychiatric diagnosis that can result in them potentially being harmed, someone else being harmed, suffering, discomfort, lots of things. So that's sort of where the second part of the meeting is, is where we're discussing things that have come up that are problematic that we want to address as a team. The third part of the meeting is logistical systems. What is working well on a logistical level, what is not working well, how can we improve? On both sides of the table in terms of, you know, we're partners, the partners in Hope side as the psychiatry providing company and the clinical staff who are on the ground at the facilities. So that's what the monthly meetings look like. The last part of what we're doing that I think is different, it's something that I think other medical groups should really be strongly considering, is that we check our own work. We have essentially an external auditor who we've hired full-time at Partners in Hope to do an independent state-level audit of medications, ensuring that they're at their lowest doses, diagnoses to ensure that no one's receiving a medication that's not appropriate for them. And a number of other metrics that are very important on a state and national level for ensuring that we're providing quality, responsible, leading edge care to our residents. That's sort of the approach that we've been executing. And I think that's what you were referring to, Gina.
0: Absolutely. Oh. And I think it's working. So when I hear you describe the programs, you know, there's, a, there's some key words that I take away from it. I take away teamwork. I take away partnership. I take away support. I like the fact that you say, you know, you basically have like a checks and balances at the end of it. So what's working? What's not working? Do we need to go back to the drawing table? This is interdisciplinary. You know, everybody plays a very specific role in this. And Drew, you know, to add to that, you're certainly a huge part of this program as well. So again, thanks, you know, Dr. Slav for just kind of that summary of what you do on your end. And I guess I'll just kind of turn it over to Drew. So it seems like we need a lot of support on our end as well. If you could just kind of talk about a little bit about how you partner with Partners in Hope and the services that we do on our end in order to make this collaboration work.
2: Absolutely. It really is about teamwork, And partnership, and we certainly need to work together and so appreciate Dr. Salah's approach because it gives the people who are providing the care day to day, the CNAs, the social work team, the activity aides, the nurses. It gives those individuals a voice in what is happening day to day with the residents and what they're experiencing. So We are grateful to have the foundation of psychiatry and the expertise of a psychiatrist and the team of NPs and PAs taking a look and doing those thorough evaluations to really understand what's happening with an individual. And then our job is to work with that team to understand what interventions will be the best interventions to serve those residents. And It comes down to a lot of training for the staff, understanding what behaviors are, why they happen, understanding what depression is, how to recognize it, how to report it, understanding what precipitating events lead to behaviors or to depression or to manic episodes or whatever mental health symptoms might be experienced, and then being able to respond to those things, being able to manage behaviors when they present so that a resident doesn't become so agitated that they endanger themselves or someone else, making sure that we are paying close enough attention that a person's depression is caught early and that we can provide one-to-one counseling so that we can adjust medication if necessary, so that we can provide some coping skills, education. so. I think what is really important about the approach to caring for individuals with behavioral health concerns is that the goal is to meet them where they are. The goal is to provide what is needed in the space where they currently live. So often when a person experiences a mental health crisis, behavioral health symptoms, the answer has been to find somewhere for them to go to get specialized care. And that is something that we absolutely want to avoid in long-term care, especially in the senior living space. We know that every time we change the routine, every time we change the environment, it creates a whole nother level of difficulty, adjustment, anxiety. So we've taken one experience of a behavioral health concern and have now made it worse when we are trying to move them into another space for care. So through the partnership and the teamwork with Dr. Salah and Partners in Hope, in our training and our unique programming at Symphony, the ultimate goal is to meet people where they are, provide the care they need in the place that they live, and improve their quality of life in everything that we do. Mm-hmm.
0: I would agree. I think when we began to have conversations about this program, you know, Drew and I did a, a tour of, of some of our symphony buildings that had existing dementia programs with some duet programs as well, poly substance abuse, psychosocial. And although the patient population existed in the building, the true programming was lacking a little bit. So and you know, that was certainly what our job was, was to, to shore up programming. But the relationship that we saw between a lot of the CNAs and nurses, the staff that takes care of these patients was so unbelievably rewarding because the longevity of staff that we have in these buildings that take care of these patients, the relationship exists. So now with these programs, we're just giving them tools and skills to be able to manage them. And so that was probably one of my biggest takeaways is that we have it. We've got the bones of it. (laughs) We're just adding more. So I think, you know, that kind of brings us to my next point. So originally when we attempted this, we had these three programs. We had dementia, which we call Harmony. We had Psych, which was kind of our new program that we were developing called Serenata. And our third one we've had for about seven years. That's our Duet program, which again is uh, basically poly substance abuse or some type of psychosocial in addition to a skilled need when we bring these patients into our building. So although we had all these three, you know, we, we knew that it would fall under one umbrella. And so just through our creative thinking and, and you know, we wanted to make this a cohesive program because really, Drew, as you said, let's keep them in the same space because oftentimes these patients belong in all three of them, correct? So they can bounce around in all of these spaces. And so with that being said, we decided to create the Neurobehavioral Institute, so the NBI. That is really the umbrella that gulfs all these three programs. One of the things that I'm most proud of is really just through the support of our Symphony leadership team that we were able to train so many of our staff members for our full eight-hour dementia training that received the Certified Dementia Practitioner Training. So do you want to maybe kind of touch on that and and what we did for some of these
2: uh, buildings? Absolutely. So speaking of Symphony's commitment to training, we offered the Certified Dementia Practitioner eight-hour training so that everyone could become certified to all of our administrative and clinical leadership within buildings that would be offering our Harmony and Serenata dementia care programs. So far, we have trained... I think, Mm -hmm. 40-plus leaders in our skilled nursing facilities so that they can really be the champions of the dementia care programming that we do on our specialized units. Once our leadership has been CDP certified, we then move on to some specialized facility training for our CNA, Nursing, Social Service, and Activity Aid staff, where we go to the specialized unit and train those individuals two solid hours of understanding dementia, behavioral management training, understanding triggers for behaviors and mental health episodes, and how to manage those things. So we spend two hours talking about just that with the staff on the units. And then we offer one hour per month of training, specialized training, so that at the end of a year, they have 14 hours of ongoing education and training for how to best work with individuals who have dementia and behaviors related to dementia. So it truly is a commitment to that population of people who need specialized care.
0: You know, I think the other thing that I want to add, which I appreciate the partnership with you so much, Dr. Sala, is that... You know, a lot of these referrals that come through are lengthy. There's challenges with either medications or behaviors. And I have to say, there's not one time that we don't call upon you to say, hey, you know, what can you give us some insight? Do you think we can safely manage? You know, how would we go about taking care of this patient? That you've just completely, um, basically honest and open book with us, telling us, you know, giving us advice, what we can, or guiding us really is the good word to use. So, I want to thank you for that and certainly want to continue the partnership in some of our other symphony buildings. But how do you see us trending in the future with some of these behavioral patients? Because I feel like the more that we're introducing them to our hospital partners, our communities, the more referrals we're starting to see. So, how do you see it out there?
1: So, I think there's a right way to do it and a wrong way. And I think the challenge in post acute care over the course of the next decade or so is going to be trying to do it the right way. Because I think that the consequences can be awful Mm -hmm. if we're doing it wrong. There's a difference. I mean, I think that when I hear, and I know these things, a lot of what Drew has been doing, setting the infrastructure, educating the leaders, taking this seriously and making it a priority is the right way to do this. We're partnering to have the infrastructure set so that the staff on the ground have what they need in terms of knowledge, in terms of systems, in terms of protocol. And then we have a Partners in Hope team who's coming in and treating the symptomatology at sort of the the highest level, according to the evidence. But I think that there's no question about the fact that more and more of the residents who will be coming into post-acute care facilities, are going to need these services without any question. Whether it's substance use, whether it's geropsych, whether it's a dementia care. I mean, these things, we're gonna have a higher proportion of the population that needs it. Having them come in and throwing a Band-Aid on it and saying, we have a therapist who can chat with people about their dementia, or some of these other approaches, are really scary. So the way that I see us trending is that there's no question that we'll have a higher proportion of this population. Being proactive and setting the groundwork for doing it right, I think, is the way that it has to go. So I really, I mean, just tip my hat to Drew and what she's been doing, because that's at the core. We've, You know, to be honest, at Partners in Hope, when the concept of this company came into reality, a lot of what we were recognizing was the exact the very same things that Drew is addressing with her training and with setting up the systems and protocols. And we wanted to take that on because it was a clear need. And this is years ago. And it's, the need has only become more pronounced. And I mean, I'm just thankful to have a partner who can handle that piece of it with excellence. Because on our end, if we're wearing too many hats, then we can't do an excellent job. And that's part of the reason that I do nothing other than work in post-acute care Mm -hmm. facilities is because I want to focus on one thing and do it well. And I think that that's a lot of what sort of the concept of the NBI is, is we've recognized what this is. We're ahead of the wave right now for setting things up to do the very best job. And that's where I see us trending.
0: Mm -hmm. I would agree. And I think I'll tip my hat to you too, Drew. <laughs> because really, from my perspective, what you've brought to Symphony and brought to the team, the level of education, of knowledge, the comfort that when you walk onto a training unit and what you're able to provide for them, really, it's just been an unbelievable support. so. I've just enjoyed this journey with you so far. I'll let you know that. Well, thank you. <laughs> you're making me blush. We're making, <laughs> but you're right. I mean, it does take that very special person. It takes a very special partnership. And you're right. We're going to have to continue to see this to the next level because the more that we have been really just kind of pushing out some really great outcomes and sharing with a lot of hospital partners. I mean, I'll be honest, some of those words that we see are a little bit scary. Like you said, scary is a scary word, but there are some of these terms are scary. Geropsych is scary. You know, poly substance abuse can be scary. So, but I think that we have handled it, you know, to the best of our ability because of the programs that we put in place. So Drew, I know part of your job role and responsibilities is to really kind of have some conversations with the family, share with the families
2: about what you're seeing and what you're doing in the building. Can you share a little bit about what you're doing? Absolutely, Gina. So it's one of my favorite things about my job is to be able to interact with families and talk with them. And I get a lot of calls from families in the community, just asking questions. They're struggling with their loved one. They want to know what they can do, how they can get some help. And so I spend a lot of time just trying to understand what's going on with them and then educating them a little bit about what they should be looking for when they need to be looking for the next level of care, whether that be outpatient care, whether it be placement of some sort, whether it be supports at home. So a lot of the family work is just hearing what it is their needs are. And then trying to, once again, address those needs. And I think that that's something that Dr. Sal and I have in common. We spend a lot of time talking to families. So I'm actually going to let him talk a little bit about his experience with families and what he does to help them work with their loved ones.
1: I mean, absolutely hit the nail on the head, Drew. I think that we're experiencing the same thing despite different roles. I don't know at what point in the history of medical care we stopped taking the time to listen to families and patients. It's a direction I hope that we're going to backtrack because it makes for bad care. It makes for unhappy people. It makes for bad news. I mean, really, what I'm experiencing when I'm on the phone with families or meeting with them in person, whatever it may be, is that we may not even come to a conclusion in terms of making a change in the treatment plan It's just a matter of sitting down and really understanding what's going on. People deserve to be heard. And it makes our care much, much better to understand what's going on. I think if we imagine that we have it all figured out, then we're going to have huge sort of recognizable deficits in terms of our outcomes, where we're landing in terms of metrics, and how we feel at the end of the day. I have a rule for myself, is that any inter- anything that I do at work, any interaction that I have with a patient or a family, if my mother, I love my mother, if my mother were standing in the room watching me, that she would be proud. So I think that having that sort of an approach is very important and it's necessary if we want to be serious about what we're doing. So I'm hearing families out and I'm hearing relief. And I think that's a big, big piece of all of this, is that mental health, geropsych, substance use, they are scary words. You know, and I think in part they're scary because as physicians, we know a lot about what to do. But if you're not a physician, it's really scary because it's sort of a black box, substance use. Goodness gracious, what do I do about that?
2: And I think that's such a good point, Dr. Salah, because- One of the things that I remind myself every day is that while I may be working with 100 patients a month that are experiencing similar symptomatology, the daughter that I'm talking to today has experienced it one time, and they're learning as they go. Absolutely. And so we have to remember that even though this may feel like something we do all the time and we understand it, we have to remember that as we work with families, this is their first time doing this most of the time and that they need patience and that they need us to take our time and let them tell their story and that 90% of the time, we're gonna learn something from that story that will inform our plan of care.
1: Absolutely. It's exactly what I was going to say, just that last sentence is that we're not doing the families a favor by listening actively and being genuinely engaged. It helps extraordinarily with providing quality care. I mean, the thing, maybe part of the reason that geropsych, substance use, and mental health and dementia are scary is because there's a lot of subtlety to it. There aren't easy answers to the questions. Because every situation is genuinely, uniquely different. And every field of medicine has its own sort of uniqueness to it. Part of the uniqueness of mental health, psychiatry, psychology, is that every single detail matters. So I'm thanking families in the end of the day. They're thanking me. They're saying, you were on the phone with me for two hours. Doctors usually don't do that. That's what I get a lot. I'm thanking them because I'm trying to do a good job of taking care of their family member. And it can be a tiny detail that they give me that changes the entire picture of what's going on. It's very important. This engagement with families and having a team that prioritizes that, Mm -hmm. you know, on the symphony side, on the Partners in Hope side has been huge. When we have the right goal in mind and we're willing to do what it takes to get there, we'll get there. And I think we are, that's where we're going. We're getting there.
0: I think I'll add one of the parts of the Harmony program that I love so much is called My Song, which exactly, you know, kind of pinpoints what you both are saying is that every patient is very unique despite the same diagnosis. They can have the same dementia diagnosis, but it's a very unique case. And with My Song, we take a look at the patient. We have a very very detailed questionnaire that we work with the family. You know, we want to know their likes. What do they do for a living? You know, what's their favorite color? What do they like to eat? Where do they like to travel? In addition, are there triggers? Is there something that we need to be aware of? Is there something, is there any, you know, triggers? Is there likes, dislikes, uh, friends, families? We want the whole history. And after we take that whole history, you know, we sit down. Drew and her team sits down and says, okay, you know, this patient would really benefit from this type of support and care. This patient, although the same diagnosis would benefit from this type of support and care. So I agree. And the family plays a huge role in that. And I think that's, you know, part of what we want to do moving forward is to bring more family nights into our buildings and to be able to share the work that we we've been doing.
2: So we've talked about a lot of things. And as we come to a close today, Dr. Salo, I'd like to ask you, you know, for our listeners that maybe advancing in age or for the loved ones that have someone that is advancing in age, if they really had to stop and think about something that they could do now to be proactive about their mental health, what would that thing be? What would you recommend to people who are who are thinking about this and who are worrying about this? What is something that
1: they can be doing now to be proactive? So it's an excellent question, Drew. And it's interesting. The timing is good because Gina had mentioned wanting to increase family nights in my song as part of the harmony piece of the symphony program. And I think that we learn a lot and it's unfortunate. I mean, we're coming to a close, so I don't want to be somber, but this is useful. We learn a lot from how things have gone when they've gone poorly. So, As we're taking our masks off with COVID hopefully really sort of clearing out to some extent, I look back at the patients and residents in facilities where I was the provider taking care of them and the extent to which, by no fault of their own and because of no fault of the facilities that they were in, they had to be isolated. And the symptomatology that we see in individuals who are isolated, trying to do it on their own not surrounded by quality companionship, the results were scary. I think we're using that word a lot. I think we've learned a lot through this pandemic that family, friends, companions, regardless of age, when I say companion, I'm not saying a life partner necessarily. I'm saying human beings with whom you share something of value. I think we don't think a lot about that piece of it. Isolation is one of the most powerful destroyers of mental health. And the opposite of it, which is spending time with friends, spending time with family, going out to the park. I mean, one of the beauties of post-acute care facilities is that you're present with whether it's a nursing facility or a long-term care facility, an independent living, assisted living facility, memory care facility, you're spending time with people with whom you share something. And not everyone needs to live in a facility, but it's critical for us to do the opposite of isolation, to spend time with others for the sake of our mental health. In and of itself, it doesn't matter what you're talking about, it doesn't need to be a group therapy session, Physically spending time with other people in person is, in the psychological research across the board, is a huge factor in maintaining good mental health, improving mental health that is struggling. And we see this especially in the older population. We have a tendency as we get older to be less socially engaged in a broad sense. And some of that might be just the culture that we have here in the United States. And I'm not sure there are probably a lot of drivers for that. We have a tendency towards that and that's okay. But doing that in a healthy way, finding a way to be balanced and to spend time with others is really important. Social interaction is huge. One other thing that I would say is And it may not be totally answering your question. I actually think that Drew may have a better answer to this question than I do. So I appreciate you asking it. But what I see as a challenge for people who are looking to sort of maintain the mental health of their family members who are getting older or for individuals who are getting older themselves is that we don't know what tools to use sometimes. And I think that if someone's struggling with feeling down or someone struggling with their memory, or someone struggling with bad anxiety, or a number of other things. When you have that kind of symptomatology, the first thought that we have often isn't to go to a physician. And I'm not saying that we should be running to the doctor for everything, but I think that if you go to the right person, you'll find that even if you can't really express what the challenges are, they'll be able to help you to move in the right direction. I think that we often go to primary care providers who are taking care of people of all ages, and that's great. But it's worth it to get on the wait list for a geriatrician, so a primary care provider who takes care of patients above the age of 65 almost exclusively. It's worth it to be on a wait list, even if it's for six months, to get in to see a geriatrician, because that individual, that physician, is doing that all day, every day. When you walk into a geriatrician's office or a, or a geriatric psychiatrist's office, and we can talk about psychiatry in a second, but we start off with our primary care providers. When you walk into their office, you may not even need to say anything to them. They'll be able to pick up a lot of what's going on. I think a challenge that we have is that maintaining our mental health is something that most of us don't know a lot about. And getting into the office to chat with someone, not to get a medication, not to be necessarily treated or to become a patient long-term or to be identified by your symptoms, given a diagnosis, not for that. To go in, to talk to someone who does this all day, every day, and is an expert, can be extremely beneficial for us. And I think the other piece of this, so, I mean, we're preventing ourselves from becoming ill or, or helping ourselves to feel better, more stable in terms of our mental health by spending time with family. If there's something that doesn't feel right, we should really be going to specialists. It's an age of specialization. And the specialists in mental health, I don't know how this works for surgery or other fields medically, but as it relates to mental health and the care of older adults, specialization is absolutely critical. It's something that we need to know. Prevent the problems. But if you sense, even if you can't describe it, because often if there's a mental health, something that's brewing in a mental health sense, you may not be able to describe it well. Going to the right person is more important than saying the right things. Going in to see a geriatrician who sees people who are struggling with the very things you may be struggling with is critical. Going to a psychiatrist. Has for the longest time been sort of a bad word. I don't go to psychiatrists. I'm not crazy. You know, those kinds of things are the quotes that we've heard. I think it's becoming less and less the case. But what a psychiatrist does is not to have you walk into his office, lay down on a couch, and talk about your dreams from when you were four years old. That is what psychiatry was a long, long time ago. Nowadays, What a psychiatrist is, is someone who has spent the better part of their adult life being an expert on your internal well-being, you feeling well, not feeling depressed, not feeling hopeless, not feeling confused or agitated or anxious. So you don't need to be a psych patient. You don't need to be ill to see a psychiatrist. Go in there to talk to someone who's an expert. You don't have to come back after that, make it a consultation, make it a field trip. I sat in the room, one of my colleagues tells me the story of when she went to see a psychiatrist, she didn't really need to, but she kind of wanted to see what it's like. And I, as odd as it sounds, I think it's well worth it now that we can look online and see the reviews for different physicians to find physicians who get very good reviews, who are known to take their time with their patients, because you can choose now. You know, Either you go to someone who has rave reviews and everyone says they spend time with them and they love them and all these kinds of things, or you can go to someone who's sort of, there isn't much information about them. But going in to talk to a specialist is worth your time. I recommend it. That's my long answer, I guess, to the question. There's a lot that we can do. I and mean, those are some of some of the things.
0: Well, thank you very much Dr. Sala for that very very thought-provoking and wonderful conversation. As always, sitting with both of you Drew and Dr. Sala, I've learned a lot today, so and I'm sure our listeners have as well. So, um, so thank you for the education, thank you for the conversation, and I look forward to growing not only the neurobehavioral program with Partners in Hope and with Drew, but in addition Symphonies Awareness for this much-needed conversation and topic. so, And also, thank you very much to our listeners for joining us today. The Sounds of Symphony. If you have any questions or would like to reach out for information, you can reach us at symphonycarenetwork.com. And have a wonderful day.